Hi, I'm Steve Sensenig. And I'm Rayburn Johnson. And you're listening to Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box is a community of people who are learning how to live beyond the limitations of institutional religion. We are searching out a message that is truly good news for everyone. Through discussions, interviews, group casts, and online interactions, we endeavor to foster a safe place to discuss our spiritual journey. We don't have all the answers, but we are not afraid of any question. So... Grab a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join in the community that is Beyond the Box. Well, welcome one and all to Beyond the Box. It is great to be back with you. Our very first episode of 2014. So glad you could join us. And I hope you like our brand new theme music for 2014. We've got a new song, so I hope you guys like the intro and the outro. Um, Just something to mix it up and try something different. Today, we're joined by our very good friend, Kevin Miller, who has become not only a personal friend, but also a friend of the podcast. Uh, Kevin actually even listens to the podcast as well, which is really cool. Many of you guys will be familiar with Kevin's work through his documentary film, Hellbound? Um, which is just a fantastic look at different views of hell, different understandings of hell, and really the debate that surrounds the topic of hell. If you haven't seen it, let me encourage you to either purchase the DVD or the Blu-ray or to get on Netflix and watch it. It is a fantastic film. But today we're going to be talking about Kevin's latest project, which is a documentary that's about 45 minutes long entitled The Chicken Manure Incident. And if that title doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what will. The Chicken Manure Incident. This is Kevin's documentary film about a situation that happened in Abbotsford, British Columbia, Canada with a homeless population and how the city of Abbotsford chose to handle that situation. Um, This is just a fascinating discussion, not only talking about the documentary, but also about how the city of Abbotsford handled a particular situation in the context of homelessness in their city. Um, about homelessness in general, and about understanding what we can do, but not only what we can do to help people who are homeless, but how we can actually understand homelessness and changes that we can make in our own lives, not only to help the homeless, but to really help ourselves. Um, Because in many ways, the homeless serve as a mirror of our own hearts. So I really hope you're going to enjoy this episode, but let's just jump right into it with Kevin Miller about the chicken manure incident. Well, folks, I am overjoyed once again to be joined by my good friend, Kevin Miller, who now has left Abbotsford and is 11 hours inland in ski country, Canada. Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be back. Hey, tell us all about this great skiing you've been experiencing. (laughs) Yeah, well, we, uh, over the summer, we moved to a community called Kimberley, British Columbia. And Kimberley is a town of uh, maybe 7,500 people. And uh, I think it's... uh, tied with Banff, Alberta, for the highest uh, community in the country. Uh, we're sitting around 3,500 feet, and we live really close to a ski hill, so this has been our family's first experience of you know being able to do that all the time, and uh, this happened to be the year that we've had record amounts of snow, so we've just been, uh, you know, it's sometimes very hard to work when I'm looking out the window, seeing it coming down, and, and <laughs> wishing I could be up there, but yeah, it's, it's been very good. 
Where uh, you you can uh, you can chalk it up to brainstorming on the slopes, right? Yeah, that's right. Get my best work done on the chair. That's what you'll tell your wife anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Kevin, of course, so many of us have become familiar with Hellbound. I remember you and I did um, our first podcast about Hellbound. Gosh, it's probably been at least two years or more. Um, it was about a year before the movie came out, I think. Yeah, I think you're and you're officially an early adopter. I think. I, I was an early adopter. <laughs> well, we uh, we followed the whole progress of the movie, and I can't tell you, I can't, I, I couldn't have been more pleased with how the movie turned out. Um, I, of course, I can't speak from your end of the spectrum as to the audience response, but uh, that film is absolutely fantastic. I can't tell you how many times I've sat and watched it and went through the special features and just a huge, uh, I, I just feel like you've done something that's, really going to be time, a timeless documentary that a lot of people are going to get a blessing out of years from now. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been, uh, for me, it definitely, it was a life-changing experience, really. I mean, it was interesting that it came about when I was turning 40, and, you know, that's one of those pivotal years in someone's life. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it really, you know, you can almost divide my adult life into the pre-Hellbound and post-Hellbound, because it's just, uh, wow. yeah, but but in terms of the film, it's been really exciting to hear from a lot of people. Uh, getting the film on Netflix in particular was, um, you know, it just gave the film a completely new life, and um, yeah, it's just, it's been really rewarding to hear how it's impacted, you know, different people's lives. Yeah, I have the DVD at home, but um, there's been a few times I watch it on Netflix just because I'm hoping that you'll get something extra out of it <laughs> by, by not popping in the DVD and hitting Netflix instead. So. <laughs> well, today we actually want to talk about your newest documentary film, which was a short documentary. What was it, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes? Yeah, it's, it's 44 minutes. I originally cut it uh, to try to, to make it uh, the equivalent of one broadcast hour, basically. So that's one hour TV without the commercials. So, yeah. And and the title is going to get a lot of people's curiosity uh, up and peaked is called the chicken manure incident, <laughs> which when I first saw the cover and I, I thought, what the heck is this movie about? I've got to find out more. <laughs> and of course, knowing that you did it made me want to see it. And since I've watched it, I've watched it twice now. And I have to say, what a great film. You really uh, talk about being in the right place at the right time. Um, yeah, I think you had just gotten your, your first, had you just gotten your first HD camera or what, yeah. what, what was the timing of that? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll address the title first, actually. Yeah. It's called the chicken manure incident. Uh, that it almost was called, uh, chicken shit, but the, uh, the eye was going to be an asterisk. And then I thought, you know, that's going to be really hard to get churches to, uh, want to see a film called that. So we decided to call it the chicken manure incident. But yeah, actually what happened was uh, back in April, I decided to make the transition from being more of a producer, screenwriter, director to actually doing more of the hands-on filmmaking. So I bought myself a camera, sound gear, lighting gear, and that sort of thing. And I was casting around for an interesting subject, really, just to sort of test out uh, you know, my ability shooting. And I hit upon a person named Ward Draper. Ward Draper's a really interesting guy. He... Uh, lives in Abbotsford. I've known Ward, you know, kind of from a distance for quite a few years. And he runs a ministry called Five and Two. And that stands for Five Loaves, Two Fishes. And uh, it's a ministry to people who are living outdoors or who are street entrenched or addicted or somehow in a poverty-stricken situation. Uh, Ward and his uh, ministry team, you know, do a lot of a lot of care for these people. And just as a person, Ward is quite intriguing, a very colorful character. So I thought, you know what, why don't I shoot an interview with him and uh, maybe do a ride along with him and, and Jesse, who works with him, 
and I can maybe put together a little promo piece they can use for their website or something, just purely for me to test out my my abilities as a cameraman. Well, uh, probably uh, a few a few days after I did that initial interview with Ward, I get a phone call from him telling me to come down to this homeless camp because the city of Abbotsford, where I, I used to live, had shown up in the morning with a truckload of chicken manure. And given these guys who were camping outside uh, 20 minutes to get their stuff out of the way, and then they were going to dump the manure on the site as a way of deterring them from camping there. And so here I am suddenly plunged into the midst of this with my camera, and I just start filming. And so that's really how the chicken manure incident developed. Um, I just started to follow the story. So it was really, for me as a, as a filmmaker, it was quite a, a unique experience of really being in the right place at the right time and having no real clear-cut agenda except to see how is this going to turn out and to film it as it goes. It's so interesting because when you're watching the film, you can kind of tell that this is one of those things that had you not been where you were when you were there, that you wouldn't have been able to catch some of the raw emotion that it seems like you got in the film. Um, it's, it's something that it felt, at least it felt for me, like this is not something that could have been recreated. No, and yeah, I was really fortunate because there was also the other side of it is, uh, and just so uh, your listeners know that what happened with this incident was, you know, I, I say on the, the poster for the film, this is supposed to be a quick and dirty solution. Uh, I think that the people who came up with this idea thought, well, we'll dump the chicken manure, which will deter the homeless, and that will be the end of that. Well, it ended up becoming a huge uh, uproar, not only in British Columbia, but across Canada. We even made headlines in uh, the UK over this. And uh, it's been a huge black eye on the city of Abbotsford, and it's led to lawsuits, investigations into the police, all sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, and, and so I just happened to be there with the camera. And the thing I think for me was that was really interesting was um, Ward Draper and Jesse Wagonist, who, are, who head up this ministry called Five and Two, they end up becoming the key spokespeople in the media and all over the place on behalf of the homeless. So mm. here this, here's this guy that I just thought would be interesting for me to practice filming on suddenly becomes the go-to guy for the press, and I'm there getting a perspective that not even the media is getting. So I was able to show a side of the story as Ward and Jesse try and process this, um, this act with the people that it was done to. Of course, they want to seek retribution, but Ward and Jesse are trying to channel their anger into more constructive paths and channel their own anger into more constructive paths. Um, I think what we also see happen in the film is Ward and Jesse go from people who are maybe um, a little bit uh, on the fringe to maybe being uh, more accepted as actually really serious voices, uh, you know, in, in really some of these, these discussions having to do with, with the least of these. You know, it's it's uh, an interesting, I think the context for the film being in the city of Abbotsford and for someone who's from the United States who's never been north of the border, you know, to me, the city, hearing the name Abbotsford didn't really mean anything until I was watching the film and started realizing that that this is the heart of the of the of the Bible Belt for Canada. Can you talk a little bit about the city of Abbotsford and why maybe this was a unique situation for this to occur here? Yeah, the city of Abbotsford is uh, probably about 140,000 people. It's located about 40 miles east of Vancouver on the west coast of the country. And it's one of the fastest growing uh, rural areas, or sorry, uh, urban areas in the country. And yeah, Abbotsford is is uh, probably one of two buckle two buckles of the Bible Belt in Canada. I think Canada has two buckles. But uh, it's, a, it's a very Christian area um, full of evangelical Christians. And so the fact that uh, the chicken manure was dumped on the homeless in this environment makes it, I think, doubly interesting. And, and something that we note in the film is uh, 
how many news reports started out by saying, you know, in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Abbotsford, the homeless are getting chicken manure dumped on them. How could this be happening? And, and that really is one of the key questions of the film is um, where is the church in the midst of this? Uh, clearly, the church was in the midst of it in the person in, in the person of Ward Draper and, and Jesse and their team with the five and two ministries. But what was really curious was in the week or two weeks or months really following this event, not once was the uh, the act ever, there was never any public statement really made by the churches of Abbotsford. And the churches of Abbotsford are quite well organized through something called the Abbotsford Christian Leaders Network. And they never really did comment on this. And of course, there was also some uh, some rumors kind of from the beginning that the Salvation Army, which ironically is the biggest, single biggest service provider to the homeless, was actually, um, I won't say that they were complicit, but they were informed that this was going to happen because the property where the manure was dumped is actually right across the street from the Salvation Army. And and so they were made aware it was going to happen and uh, basically, uh, you know, kind of gave their okay or at least uh, said, well, go ahead. And so that was really troubling, I think. And so Ward Draper in the film, he expresses a lot of anger and uh, yeah. used a little bit of foul language in the film. But it's, I think, just born of this frustration of somebody who's on the front lines um, 24-7, uh, just really trying to, you know, be that helping hand and looking back and nobody's there and uh, mm. just wondering why. And, I, and, you know, I think that there's a certain point at which uh, – your anger can turn to bitterness. And, and so the question is, can you kind of find a way out of that? I think one of the interesting things in the film is I remember there's a, there's a particular interview and I can't remember what the gentleman's name is or what his position was, but he basically makes the case that this was kind of a, um, that it was almost a rogue operation. That was kind of a last minute decision by a small group of people to do this. And then after the fact, that really no one else had had either been involved or been informed about it. And I noticed that right at right during and after the interview, you're putting up these headlines showing how the all of these different people in the city of Abbotsford knew that this was coming from the Salvation Army to the mayor's office to the police department, all of these different organizations. Um, what what's the real story behind that? Because it, it, is it true? that this was a small group of people and it was kind of a spur of the moment decision, or was this something that was orchestrated over a long period of time? Well, this is where, you know, the making of the film was a little bit disillusioning for me because, um, you know, you, you hope that people who are elected to these public offices are people of goodwill and they're really there to serve the public and that sort of thing. But what I really saw, uh, as this story unfolded, what everyone in Abbotsford saw was really business as usual in terms of politics and power, you know, power politics. And so, yeah, what started out when this happened, of course, the mayor and the uh, city manager make a big show of apologizing and, oh, you know, we're going to deal with this. And, and yeah, it was just the decision of one manager. Uh, but then, of course, through Freedom of Information, we get uh, access to emails between all the city departments and find out that this was really a plan that was five months in the making and that there was multiple city departments involved. And, you know, some people did get fired over this for sure. But this was really, you know, the best the best and brightest. This was the, the idea that they came up with in terms of dealing with the homeless. And so you have to wonder um, if there isn't a, a level of frustration preceding this. And, and I really kind of put that forward as a hypothesis to the police in particular. And I remember uh, Corporal Ian McDonald, who's the spokesman for the police, saying, you know, he didn't really agree with that because there was no precipitating incident. It almost seemed like this chicken manure incident 
came out of the blue. Um, but I don't know. It's 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 just really a difficult thing to fathom um, why you know that would happen. And this is the thing. This is uh, I guess that really in, in I think every city struggles with these issues to a greater or lesser extent. And and I think one of Abbotsford I think has a reputation for being particularly heavy-handed in terms of how it deals with its homeless population. Um, on the one hand, people complain about uh, petty theft and people camping on private property and that sort of thing. But on the other hand, people will fight tooth and nail against any form of, um, say, transitional housing that will get people off of uh, addictions or that sort of thing. And that's actually something that's going on right now in Abbotsford. There's millions of dollars of um, government money and, and private money behind a proposed facility that would get 20 men off the street, um, 20 men who are addicted. Well, just uh, last Monday in Abbotsford, there was a, a very uh, boisterous uh, town meeting that went to one in the morning where all the people in the business community are fighting against this thing tooth and nail uh, because they're afraid of how it's going to threaten you know, the investments they've made in the downtown core of Abbotsford. So it's difficult because people don't want people living outside on the one hand, but they refuse to support opportunities for low-cost housing on the other because, you know, the whole nimbyism, we don't want that next to us. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, difficult. It really, uh, I think that Richard Beck hit hit on that really well when he talked about how we have a tendency to, um, because, because of our death triggers, that we have a tendency to put people uh, that make us uncomfortable and remind us of our own mortality, that we have a tendency to push them to the margins, whether it's the elderly that we put in nursing homes or the mentally handicapped that we put into an institution or the homeless that we don't want in front of our houses. We don't want across the street. We want them somewhere tucked away where we don't have to look at them. And yet the irony is that, I've I've met very few people that don't have some level of compassion toward homeless people and towards marginalized people. Or I've I've met very few people who don't believe that they should be helped or that something should be done to to um, get them out of the situation they're in. But it seems like when it hits home, we have a tendency to put up our guards, to lock our doors, and to just want it out of our sight. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's a really practical objection to dealing, you know, helping the homeless, uh, in that I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, and people actually got up and said this at this meeting is that I will go and grab a shovel and and start digging the hole for this facility, but not where it's currently located. And so, yeah, we definitely want to sequester it because we've invested millions of dollars in revitalizing the downtown. Why, Why would we want a facility that's, it's allowing people you know, who are potentially a threat to that investment now to congregate right on the fringe. I mean, I, I can sort of understand that argument, but sure. the counter argument is that these people are there already on the street. So why not bring them indoors and actually bring them indoors in a place that can provide a program that is going to help them transition to a more healthy way of living, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, and I think the other side of it too, is that um, the the response, you know, people see the homeless and, and the street entrenched people as a, as a threat to their business. But I think that this really cold-hearted attitude toward them is a bit potentially bigger threat to business mm-hmm. because people are going to start to say, I'm not going to patronize these these businesses in Abbotsford because they're so callous and uncaring, you know, and they're so self-interested. Uh, it's just, you know, but yeah, I, I think there's something as well to what Richard Beck says, because if you think about, you know, who are the people we celebrate in our culture? It's the people who are able to 
basically amass the largest amount of wealth, the people who are the best consumers. Well, people who are living on the street aren't good consumers. They, don't, they haven't amassed a lot of wealth. They're, they're basically the living dead in a way. And so I think that we definitely want to get those people out of sight because they, they are death triggers for us. And so I think on a real subconscious level, um, you know, some of these business people and others who are, you know, really responding against the homeless are responding to some of those triggers as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the, uh, the juxtaposition and, and, and kind of the, like you said, we can see both sides of the coin. Your, your interview with the mayor of Abbotsford, I felt like really brought that out. And I thought he had some actually really interesting points. Uh, one of the insights that he gave that I found so interesting was how people were screaming to have something done about the homeless using the property, but how they turned on him and the city when the city actually did something. And he, he talked about how they actually wanted someone's head on a platter for the incident, thus creating another possible homeless person. Mm-hmm. I just thought the scapegoating tendency was so interesting that that was demonstrated in the film so that, you know, so many times it's easy for us as sometimes self-righteous people to look at that evil city and that evil mayor and the evil leaders of the city and say, how dare you do that to these marginalized people? And yet we can be the very same people who are calling our town council, asking them to do something. Um, talk about that juxtaposition and, and maybe how we've had a tendency not only to scapegoat uh, people for doing the will, uh, our will, the will of the people, but also maybe how we can protect them from being vilified during this whole process. Well, I think that's, you're right on. I mean, I think that's one of the real challenges in this is it's, it's so easy to scapegoat somebody. And, and I'll tell you, when this happened, I wanted to know who had made this decision. Now, number one, I wanted to interview them for my film. But I really wanted to know, <laughs> I mean, who had, made, who had made this decision. But, yeah, there's that tendency to, con- in the midst of condemning someone for scapegoating someone, you end up scapegoating them. I mean, it's just almost the default mode uh, of, of public discourse. And so I think the mayor's right on in that regard. I think that he's, you know, in a sense, also the master of hyperbole there. But, but I think that the, the gist of what he's saying is true, is that um, people are calling for blood. And so what is he supposed to do? You know, you know, give them Barabbas or something like, you know, in a sense, like <laughs> just throw somebody out there. Um, and he wasn't going to do that. And I think that was probably smart to, you know, spread the blame in, in that regard. But the other side of it is I can't imagine being the mayor, as he says in the film, when you're getting phone calls from, um, you know, this, in this case, a grandmother who was living close to the place where this chicken manure was dumped. And, you know, she's you know, having to explain um, certain uh, sexual acts to her granddaughter because mm-hmm. her granddaughter witnessed them going on in this in this area. So, wow. you know, it, this camp, the other side of it, too, was a mess. Um, and there was all kinds of problems with the camp. Of course, nobody would say that this living situation was a good one. Um, I think it's more just really the affront to these people's dignity and just really the lack of dialogue that, that, uh, you know, that just wasn't happening before the manure is dumped. I think that's the thing that people really find problematic. I thought one of the, uh, one of the best parts of the film was not just the coverage of the story and the, the different aspects of the story, but actually, uh, getting down and dirty with the homeless people. Actually, the interviews, the nitty gritty, the down, the on the street perspective. Um, because so many times, you know, so many of us have been intimidated 
by the homeless. Um, you, you kind of had an advantage in that you had a camera in your hand. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of had, you, you kind of have an icebreaker, so to speak, when you go to talk to them. But for many of us, you know, it can be a very awkward situation. And so I just found it really, uh, really interesting. And one of the insights that of course I've seen in my, in my own, um, experience with the homeless, but that you really pull out in the film is the level of drug abuse that is, um, not only being practiced by homeless people, but is actually the cause of the homelessness. Um, one of the, one of the girls that you showed in particular was just, it was really striking, especially with my own experience with foster care and, and seeing a lot of these same kinds of situations play out. You interview a young girl who I'm guessing is probably in her early twenties, um, who, recounts the story of having a four-year-old daughter who she was basically going to give up for a boyfriend um, because he was asking her to to get her out of the picture and then suddenly realizes what she's doing. Um, and because of that, has a lot of guilt. And um, you could tell that as she, she seemed to be making a progression off of harder drugs onto, <laughs> you know, maybe better drugs, if there's a way of saying that. But just the, I just found it so interesting how so many of these people, drugs were were a huge part of that, which really plays right back into the fear that many people have, the average citizen, of having something like that right across the street from them. Um, Did you find in almost all your conversations that drugs were on some level involved in most of the situations? I, I would say in maybe 50% of the people I interviewed who were living outdoors, the drugs were a factor. You know, it's interesting moving from Abbotsford, which was actually a few years ago, the murder capital of Canada. We've got huge oh. gang problems in Abbotsford. Somebody was just, you know, a gang leader was just killed there. Uh, um, and I moved to Kimberley, BC, and I don't lock my vehicle generally. I don't lock my garage. Oh, I think I just let everybody know that. Uh, but you know, like we, we, we don't worry about crime, you know, and I kind of said to my wife the other day, you know, I don't think Kimberly has a meth problem because if we had a meth problem, we would have a crime problem. And, uh, you know, that that's, is one of the problems is that when you don't have any source of income, but you've got an addiction, you've got to find a way to fund it. So I, I remember going for a walk in a park near my house in Abbotsford one morning and, uh, all the light standards around the the walkway in the park had been torn open and all the copper wire removed because, you know, copper is worth money. And that's a real problem. Wire theft. Uh, People will steal whatever they can recycle or whatever. So yeah, there's, there's definitely some legitimate problems that come along with uh, drug use and, and yeah, drug use is one of the many factors that contribute to homelessness. Um, And then I think the other thing too, is just sort of being homeless compel someone towards self-medication. And so you'll seek out alcohol or drugs and you'll often fall in with people who are fighting uh, those types of uh, struggles as well. And so, you know, there tends to be a compounding effect. And, you know, to speak to the intimidation factor, uh, you know, it's interesting to go from filming something like Hellbound where I'm interviewing academics and that sort of thing in their offices to to, uh, basically – you know, I'm filming graffiti under a bridge one day and, and this guy named Gregory comes along with his shopping cart and I make an appointment to meet him under this tree in half an hour. And I, you know, I, I go by a bookstore and I see a, a bike leaning against a wooden box in a, in a vacant lot. So I go knock on the box and there's, you know, Rob living in there. And so you, um, for me personally to, uh, cross that threshold too, was very intimidating at first. Uh, but I was actually astounded um, the girl Christine you talked about, she's uh, camp- was camping in the park, 
in the bush. And I had actually been to the camp the day before. Nobody was around. I showed up the next day when I got the interview. I just walked into the camp. They were huddled in their tents because they'd been rained on for the last few days and they were just literally freezing. But they just come out and uh, agree immediately to do an interview, which lasts about an hour. And she tells me her whole life story, including basically abandoning, you know, on the verge of abandoning her daughter in the middle of an empty street to satisfy a boyfriend that just didn't want to put up with the kid. So for me, it was very intimidating at first, but um, the acceptance that I received and just the the willingness to tell their story. I was, uh, my first four interviews uh, with homeless guys, I was four for four on these tough, hardened guys breaking down crying in the middle of the interview wow. um, as they told their story. And uh, it was just really powerful for me and really humanizing um, because, you know, uh, as we show in the film, one of the guy worked as a, as a, in a body shop for 25 years. Another guy was a ticketed welder. Another guy's a certified mechanic. Uh, another guy was a former college student. This girl who was uh, on meth, she graduates high school at age 15 and already had owned a home and a car and all this kind of stuff. So I think that oftentimes when we use the word homeless, that just is a catch-all term like Christian, you know, and yeah. it, it could mean so many different things. And and I think one of the most interesting is is this guy, Nick, we feature in the film, who's living outdoors on the same street that he was born on in 1963. And so he yeah. claims he's not homeless. Uh, he's just living outdoors. And I think that's, for me, I've really actually adopted that term, is, is people who are living outdoors because they're not homeless. It's just that their home isn't like my home. Um, and it's not a fixed address necessarily, but... They do have a place. Um, and, you know, there's one girl I just kept trying to get on camera, but I never could because she was a bit of a firecracker who uh, had this camp in the bush that she kept bragging about where she had, you know, potted plants and all this kind of stuff. But she wouldn't let anybody know where it was because, number one, the police would probably come in and, you know, pack it all up. And number two, uh, homeless people are always living in fear of other people who are living outdoors stealing their stuff, you know, and, and so that's a constant battle as well. Yeah, you know, uh, I think you really hit on something really important, Kevin. Um, we had a podcast that we did a few months ago. Uh, it was a group cast that we did with several of the listeners from Beyond the Box, and we all got together and for a couple of hours just talked about community. And one of the things that came out of that that really was kind of the cornerstone of that conversation was this idea of I see you. I don't know if you've seen the movie Avatar. Yes. Um, and you remember, you remember how they would say, I see you, which mm-hmm. was kind of their way of, it was like their greeting, but it it went beyond that to a level of, you know, I, I'm looking past what's on the outside to what's on the inside. And I think what you're, what you're talking about is that, that the greatest gift that you can give someone in that situation or in any life situation is simply hearing their story, being willing to listen to them and being willing to express that that person has value. Um, it reminded me of a situation. I was, I was here in Nashville by myself for several months before my family could move here. And one night I went to target and, um, as I was coming out of target, I saw a couple of guys that were homeless and the last, I don't know, I I've always kind of had a bold streak <laughs> sometimes to a, to a dumb measure, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I just, I, I thought, I just want to go over and talk to these guys and see what's going on with them and, you know, maybe give them five bucks or 10 bucks or something, you know, but anyway, in the process of doing that, I just started talking to these two guys and one of them had a guitar on his back and he asked if he could play me a song and 
he pulled off his guitar, which, and I was just assuming because I've, I've went through this routine a few times and I was just assuming, Oh, this is going to be one of those things that I just kind of have to grip my teeth and bear it. Cause you're in Nashville and yeah. everybody in Nashville sings, <laughs> you know? So, um, he pulls out his guitar and he sings this song that he had written. That was just, my mouth probably was dragging the ground the entire time he was singing because it was just beautiful. His playing his singing. And, um, when we got done with that, I thought to myself, my gosh, not only did I get something more out of that than what those guys got, but I could tell when that man left what meant way more to him than any money I could give him or than a meal that I could buy him was the fact that I had stood there for five minutes and let him sing to me. Mm-hmm. And that that was, uh, that it was something that expressed value for him that showed him that what he was doing actually meant something. Yeah. And that really changed me uh, and, and changed my perspective of, because like you said, we have a tendency to lump and dump when it comes to homelessness and assume that everybody's story is the same. And yet these people are unique, they're individuals. And um, if we can begin to look at them, like you said, as living outdoors, maybe even instead of the stigma, what we call homeless, that maybe it will cause us to value what they have to contribute to society. Yeah, well, I think it is. I mean, we, you know, it, this is what we do as human beings is we simplify the world. We have to simplify yeah. the world because that's how yeah. we get through life, you know. Uh, and I think oftentimes that's a very useful thing. I mean, it, it is very adaptive, but there's times at which it just becomes, um, you know, maladaptive and, and harmful and hurtful. And so it's, it's yeah, one of those things we need to sort of check ourselves on. And like I say, making this film for me, uh, you know, I have some experience with this in the past just because I have a couple of brothers who've been homeless or semi-homeless at certain times in their life. And I've tried to and they both uh, wrestled with addictions as well. So I've kind of lived uh, the family side of this. My background also is in uh, working with young offenders in, uh, uh, you know, youth custody facilities. So I kind of, you know, there's a there's a sort of an experience with more of a deviant mindset. So I think that I I can relate really well to these some of these guys. Um, and, uh, I, I find them quite fascinating and, and, and interesting to hang out with. And, and I guess it's, it's the fear factor. I mean, that, that I, I guess we come back to is fear of the other fear of the one who's different. That's really the thing to try and overcome. I, I know that somebody, I think on the beyond the box, uh, Facebook page had, had asked for some practical things that anyone can do to help people who are living outdoors. And, and I think it goes back to what you did outside of target, which is, is offer validation and relationship. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I walk into homeless camps with a $2,000 camera and I mean, you'd think that most people would assume I have a lot of money, which I don't. In fact, I was unemployed at the time. That's why I had all the time to make this film. I had no work. Um, but, uh, not once did anyone ask me for anything. Um, and you know, it never really occurred to me until a few months later that that was the case. Um, and, uh, but what, what I felt that people, what they really wanted was relationship. And, and that, if you ask Ward Draper, who's in the film, what's the number one thing that they provide through their ministry? It's that it's relationship because, you know, I met a young Aboriginal guy. I was back in Abbotsford, uh, probably uh, two and a half weeks ago to premiere the film. And I went down to the camps just to kind of see if who was around that I knew, and I met a, uh, a guy uh, uh, who had been there when the chicken manure was dumped. I just didn't meet him because he actually booked out of town afterwards. And, uh, you know, here he's from northern British Columbia. He's an Aboriginal guy, which you might call a Native uh, American in the United States. 
has no relatives around. He's been in and out of jail, um, having trouble with the police and that sort of thing. This guy is just doing his darndest just to stay out of jail right now um, with really no support network around him. And so what does he need? You know, he doesn't need necessarily somebody to drive by and say, here's a sandwich. See you later. He needs somebody who is going to invest time in him. Um, in helping him transition out of a situation. You know, something Ward uh, Draper from the 5 and 2 points out in the trailer to uh, the chicken manure incident is that the city of Abbotsford has the, it's actually the most generous city in Canada uh, on a per capita basis in terms of money donated to charity, but it also conversely has the lowest volunteer rate in all of Canada. So Mm. people in Abbotsford are very generous with their money, not so generous with their time. And that was a real wake up for me because I'm just like anyone else, self-involved. I got four kids. I'm struggling to, you know, make ends meet and all that kind of stuff. And to hear that from Ward, it was a real, you know, wake up call to me. My wife actually had taken the kids a few times to volunteer with the five and two. But, you know, personally, I hadn't been that involved because I'm, you know, unfortunately, I travel and all this kind of stuff. I can make as many excuses as the next person. But really, I think my lesson coming away from this film is that's what people, whether you're homeless or not, we need that network. And it's so easy to condemn people who are living outside from the comfort of our our, our network of friends and family. Well, just imagine if you didn't have that. You're struggling yeah. with addiction. You may be struggling with mental illness. Um, you have no money. You're depressed. Well, what are you going to do? You know. And and um, I think that that if we can just sort of begin to put ourselves to really try and empathize with someone in that situation, I think that can really take us a long ways toward you know trying to figure out what we can do. I know that this is not necessarily an insight that that um, you you would have either put into the movie or drawn out of the movie, but just in in talking with you right now, it just kind of hits me in talking about the city of Abbotsford being, um, like you said, having the highest uh, charity rate and yet simultaneously the lowest volunteer rate and also simultaneously being the buckle of the Bible belt. It, I think there's an interesting correlation there in... Um, in how we do religion and in institutional models of religion where the, the answer is really to have a few professionals that do the work while we throw money to the professionals to, to let them fix the problem for us. Mm-hmm. And that, that that's really the only thing that we've, for the most part, within at least within institutional models of the church, that's really the only thing that we've ever had modeled for us is that you have a professional cast of people, whether it's missionaries or people that run soup kitchens or whatever. And the job of the average person in the pew is to simply throw money at the problem and, and pray that it gets better. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's one of the things that, that really struck me in your documentary was how Ward and Jesse, it shows them going and putting a letter on the front door of all of the different churches, just to even try and bring an awareness um that this is even an issue because so many of these people I'm sure saw it on the evening news, but they were more interested in what the stock, you know, the stock report was for that day or what the weather was going to be tomorrow. And um, I thought it was so interesting in the response that they received. They said that maybe like two or three people mm-hmm. out of all of those churches that they had put a notification on asking them to kind of get involved, that only two or three people had really even contacted them. I thought, what, what an indictment. And when I say that, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I think it's an indictment on a system 
that encourages us to only be involved with our money and not to really be involved with our lives. Yeah, well, because investing our lives, it, it's very costly. You know, investing our money is not so costly, although we don't really like to let go of that either. But, uh, yeah, you know, that was one of the moments when I was shooting the film where I felt I am making a documentary because what happened was, uh, you know, I go from uh, filming Ward at the chicken manure site to finding out, oh, this evening you're going to process this with your people, like with with your church, which is composed uh, in part of some of the people at the manure dumped on the moat. Can I come and film that? Sure. Oh, wait a second. After the church service tonight, you're driving around to all the churches in Abbotsford and you're basically posting, uh, you know, your 99 thesis on the, their doors. Oh, can I come along and film that too? And so that's, you know, what ended up happening. They So what they did was they actually wrote, they were so sort of, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word, disillusioned, disheartened from this incident happening, that they composed what they called a letter from the mission field, which they wrote and then posted on the doors of uh, dozens of churches in Abbotsford, um, just to try and exactly bring awareness to the issue. And let me tell you, I mean, I lived in Abbotsford for 13 years, and I'm zooming around doing my, you know, whatever business I have to do in town. I might see a guy with a shopping cart. I might see somebody going down the road with a backpack or whatever, a bag of bottles on the way to the recycling depot and not give it a second thought. So I'm as blind to this as everybody until I make this film. Um, and and it was just a wake-up call to this whole hidden population that exists in the city. And uh, and so when it comes to the church, I mean, you know, I, as I try and show in the film, the churches in Abbotsford are doing a lot of really good things. Um, but, you know, as we always can say, there's, there's always more that we can do. And, and yeah, I think there is just that culture within the church as a whole. Let's let the professionals do the work. We're here to show up at a service or whatever. Everyone's done everything for us. So we're basically now consumers of yet another product. You know, that's really, I mean, that's evangelical Christianity, um, by and large. And this is again, something I really appreciate about Ward and Jesse with the five and two ministries is that they, uh, purposely blur the lines between quote unquote clients and service providers. Um, and so that if you're uh, receiving the services of the five and two, it's not very long before you're also helping to deliver those services. Mm. You know, the story actually, uh, the, the, the moment that convinced me I needed to do an interview with Ward was my wife came home from running into him at the coffee shop one day and Ward was lamenting the fact of him having no money to do what he needs to do this week, as he never does. And he actually pulls a Ziploc bag out of his jacket pocket, and it's full of change. And he says, this is my outreach budget for the week. You know how I got this money? A guy in social assistance went out and picked cans and bottles and then turned them in and gave me the cash. And that's what we're going to use to try and do our supper this Wednesday. And I thought, wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, wow. But... Um, and so, but but I think that to me, that's one of the the cool things about it is that Ward and Jesse are purposely, even in the way that they, they and their team do ministry, is is they're trying to get rid of the professionalism. Um, that we're basically in this together, helping each other. Because when I minister to you as somebody who's living outdoors, lo and behold, you're ministering to me because you're forcing me to confront um, my own fears and prejudices, and and you're. Um, just making me a more patient person. You're, you know, you're, you're just causing me to, to change, to stretch and to grow in the act of me trying to help you. And so I think that they recognize intuitively that reciprocal nature of things. You know, uh, something I think about too, in terms of what people can do, 
uh, we have a, a group, uh, well, it's an international group called the Mennonite Central Committee. We call it MCC. There's a lot of Mennonites in the Fraser Valley where uh, Abbotsford is located. And and they actually pioneered a program several years ago for uh, sex offenders who were being released from prison. And it was called, at the time, it was called Circles of Concern. I'm not sure what it's called now. But what they did was they assigned uh, a certain number of individuals to become a, a network for a sex offender who's being released into the community because if anyone is a pariah in today's community it's it's somebody who's been released from prison due to a crime like that and what they were aiming to do was to see if building a community around this person would help to re- reduce uh, recidivism or or the rate of reoffense well over a period of time the program turned out to be very very successful and uh, because it gave these people what they were being denied. And, and if you release somebody like that who's dealing with those types of issues and they have nobody to turn to, guess what? They're going to yeah. self-medicate and they're going to get right back in trouble again. Well, this is my brainwave when I think about the situation in Abbotsford and, and other places where all this is happening. I mean, why couldn't churches take this type of approach to the homeless? Why couldn't we begin to build circles of concern um, around individuals that we've identified who are living outdoors or street entrenched or whatever, and we become the network that they need, you know, to, and, and this is a long-term thing that you commit to this person for <clears throat> several months or you commit to this person for a year. But, and, and I'm not talking about a goal-oriented program necessarily, yeah. but you're going to be there to say, what can we do for you? How can we help you, um, you know, get to the goals that you're trying to reach for yourself? How can you even begin to form goals? Um, and how can we be a resource for you? But just just really being proactive about investing our time as opposed to just saying, well, I'll just go volunteer at the soup kitchen, which is great, but you're, you're constantly bandaging the wound. How can we start to wow. make a structural shift? And if you think about the church, this is the thing that kind of burns up someone like Ward, is that the churches in Abbotsford are wealthy. I mean, there's a lot of money in these churches uh, there's a lot of money tied up in buildings and land because land around Vancouver is very, you know, very pricey. And so there's all this tremendous resource and there's only really at the most a couple hundred homeless people in the community. Like why on earth can't we sort of pool our, our, our cell and, and so many people, why can't we pull this together and actually really solve this problem? You know, it is a solvable problem. Yeah. It reminds me of when, uh, when I was a foster parent back in North Carolina, um, one day, uh, Steve and I, he, he was a foster parent as well at the time we were talking through this. And at the time, I think there were around 45 to 50 kids in foster care, um, in the particular County that we were in and there were not enough foster families for all of these kids. So sometimes they would actually have to go live in a temporary situation until the a home would open up for them. And then it struck us one day that in the County we were in, and granted, this was a very small County. I mean, it might've had 25,000 people in the entire county, something like that. Um, In that county, I want to say there were 250 churches, I think it was. Mm. And I thought to myself, 250 churches, there's like 50 foster kids. Basically, if one out of every five churches had one family in the church Mm -hmm. that would open their home to foster kids, there would be no need for more foster homes. And I just thought the irony there that we could have 250 churches and not enough room for 50 kids to lay their head at night. Yeah. That just, 
you know, mind boggling. It is mind boggling, but at the same time, I think, man, would I take in one of those kids and I right away come up with a list of reasons why our home, I'd love to do it, but it wouldn't be the ideal home. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's difficult, you know, and, and, and this is the other thing too is, uh, you know what, we're all called to do different things. Um, sure. But, and, and so, you know, this is, this is the thing I wrestle with. I mean, personally, um, you make a film like this and it, it really calls you out into the open. There's nowhere to hide from this to say, well, what am I doing? Um, you know, if I were in the position of the mayor, how, how would I have responded and that sort of thing? But, but it's that thing of, of, of really, you know, sacrificing, you know, giving of ourselves. It's very, very difficult. And, yeah. and, and so that's one of the things I'm still trying to process in terms of how we live as a family, too. I mean, it's different. I don't live in Abbotsford right now. And even where I live in Kimberley, I mean, the social issues here are just so drastically different, I mean, than, than where I was. So it's, it's definitely something I wrestle with. And so even Ward and Jesse would say, we know not everyone's called to do what we're called to do. But there's, you know, just like uh, in a war, not everyone's going to be on the front lines, you know, as a soldier. There's going to be, you know, people who are helping, you know, in the supply line all the way back. And, and so it's really asking yourself, where can I fit into the, the chain? And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a personal question that everyone has to deal with on their own. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I think that's one thing we have to be careful about. When I say that, I don't mean that in a condemning way. It, it was just it was just something to me to think that there could be 250 churches yeah. and out of 250 churches you couldn't find 50 families I know. you know out of two because you're thinking to yourself in 250 churches if there's even 20 families in a church which would be a, considered a small church yeah. you know you're thinking gosh only that would only be like one out of 100 families yeah. but i know exactly what you mean it is I, I honestly kevin this is something that that I really struggle with that, to be quite honest, almost leads me to the edge of depression um, regularly is just the need is so great. Mm-hmm. You know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, like Jesus yeah. said. I mean, there's such great need in so many areas and you can't do everything. No. And it's such a, it's such a tough thing to, I mean, like myself, I, sometimes I feel like I'm oversensitized and that it, you know, almost to the the paralysis by analysis stage where you just look around and the need is so great that you just go, my gosh, I can't even offer a drop in the bucket, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But I think you really hit on something and I think it really does come back to community that the way we cross those thresholds are are, are through community. Um, You know, you were talking about getting a community around these people that come out of prison and they don't have a support system you know, it's so, it would be so scary as an individual, as either a single person or as a married couple to take on someone like that on your own. Mm-hmm. But when we can have a support structure, not only for that person, but for ourselves as, as caregivers, as service providers to say, Hey, we need other people to come around us, maybe even as a safety net for us in the midst of ministering to someone else, you know, just like in, uh, in talking to the homeless people, you know, there, there, there are people out there who are going to feel comfortable all by themselves walking under a bridge with graffiti, like you said, and encountering a homeless person. The majority of the people are never going to get there uh, or, or never. And when I say get there, it's not as, I don't mean it like that. I, I just mean they'll, that will never be something within them yeah. that God's put there. Um, but if those same people have a support structure and a group of people that are willing to go with them, all of a sudden these possibilities open up that never would have opened up 
on an individual basis. And suddenly relationships can begin to form that never would have formed had that person tried to take it on on their own. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think it really is community. I think, you know, when I think when I consider Abbotsford, for instance, I think one of the first steps to take is to acknowledge that these folks who are living outdoors are part of our community. They're, they're not necessarily paying taxes. And so we have the, this is one of the problems we struggle with is that our view of justice isn't about equality. It's about proportion, proportionality. So, you know, going back to you know, a version of what Karl Marx said, from from each according to his uh, ability to each according to his worth, you know. So there's this sense of that's justice. You know, these people aren't contributing, so why should we give them anything? Um, and, and and I think that's one of the things we, need, we, we wrestle against in our hearts. You know, we've worked hard. We pay our taxes. Why should we, you know, have to, you know, give to these folks who just obviously just want to be out there, you know. Yeah. You, you yeah. just you just run into that sort of mentality. Um, but but recognizing that, like it or not, these folks who are living outside are part of our community. And um, so let's try and figure out a way to live together because, believe it or not, we have shared self-interest with these folks. We have a lot – we're actually after a lot of the same things. So how can we sort of work toward a situation where our shared interests can, can overlap and uh, – you know, I think that we can be creative about that. And uh, but I think first thing is really crossing that barrier, that very scary, scary barrier of talking to folks who just aren't like us. And I think that working as a community, not necessarily as an individual, is is a really good way to go because, um, yeah, it's it just it sort of uh, it just makes things a little less scary. Um, and I mean, again, you got to think about a homeless person with a group of people coming toward them and say, hey, let us help you. They're going to run <laughs> for the hills, you know. Um, so, again, there's there has to be sort of a sensitivity as well to the situations people are in. The other thing, too, I should note is that there's a big difference between Canada and the United States in this regard in that the social safety net that's available in, uh, for people who fall through the cracks in Canada is, you know, um, I'll say quite generous maybe uh, compared to maybe what's available in the United States, uh, you know, even in terms of health care and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, nobody's going to die from cancer on the street because they can't afford an operation, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, and, and the same thing goes for, you know, different types of welfare programs and that even those things in the last 20 years have been clawed back substantially in Canada, but there is more of a safety net. So I think that's another thing that people tend to, it's another way for us to just really pass the buck onto the government as well. There's programs for those people. So we'll, I pay my taxes, you know, kind of like Scrooge, you know, says when he's confronted in the Christmas Carol, I pay my taxes, you know, there's, <laughs> I support the poor houses, so send them there. Um, so there's, there's that sort of way of doing things, but, uh, I mean, I guess that's a way of sort of abdicating responsibility as well. Um, there's a point behind me mentioning that, but I can't really recall what it was, but anyway, yeah. Well, I, I think with what you're saying, it reminds me of uh, Dorothy Day one time talking about how, uh, her her mission was to create a world in which it was hard for people to sin. And, you know, I think about that and I'm like, you know, in, in the situation, the scenario you were giving earlier with someone getting out of prison, when we leave that person on their own, we're creating a really easy situation for them to either fall into drug abuse, some kind of substance abuse, or to to go back to the exact same lifestyle they went to, or even to desire to go back to prison, to have structure, to have three square mills and a place to lay their head. And uh, I think through, I think the answer really does lie in community. And then the idea that we can create a safety, a a support structure 
that actually makes it tough for that person to fall through the cracks. It makes it tough for that person to sin. I think that's really, you know, as the body of Christ, what we're called to do. And one thing I thought that was so interesting in that, um, and that I can see, <laughs> I, I could see a lot of people having a problem with this. But for instance, there's a scene in the movie where you show Ward um, parked on the side of the road, and he's and he's getting he's getting his needle depository ready so that he can pass out clean needles um, to the homeless. Mm-hmm. And you know, <laughs> there's so many people a, as Christians that would have so many problems with that and go, "Gosh, you're just enabling them. Mm-hmm. You're just helping them to sin." And Ward sees that in a totally different way, and I believe I do too. Talk a little bit about that and maybe what his philosophy was with that. Sure. I mean, that's been a, a big controversial issue in the city of Abbotsford as well, uh, which is the notion of harm reduction. So um, get, doing a needle exchange, that's what they were doing on the side of the road. In Abbotsford, uh, at the present time, you can run a needle exchange as long as it's uh, in a mobile site, not in a in a stationary facility. So what Ward and his team will do, and I've seen it, is you'll go off into the bush where the camps are or, or have been, and you'll see uh, sharps containers next to garbage cans with signs that say, throw your dirty rigs here. And then the, uh, the five and two guys will come regularly and, and empty the sharps containers um, and just to try and keep people safe. And so, the, yeah, so the same thing in terms of supplying clean needles. And, yeah, the argument against it is that you're enabling, you're facilitating, you're essentially um, – uh, almost, uh, you know, baptizing this this uh, practice as a good thing. Where Ward would say, "No, what we're trying to do is actually keep people alive long enough to try and help them get off drugs, um, and or you know, not get HIV or hepatitis C or some of these uh, terrible things that you can get by sharing needles." So, it's looked at basically. Um, you know, I think harm reduction. If that if harm reduction were seen as an end in itself, I think it could be seen as a form of enabling, but. Harm reduction, what it does is it helps become a foundation for relationship with people who are intravenous drug users, for instance. Um, so they, you know, Vancouver actually goes a step further and has uh, safe injection sites where you can actually go and inject uh, heroin um, actually under the supervision of uh, medical personnel and that sort of thing. And again, this is a way of bringing people in from the cold, so to speak. Um, and yes, they are now doing something that's actually illegal and very bad for their health. Uh, you know, under supervision, but it now allows you to build a relationship with them so that they would come in contact with a service and a service provider that they may never encounter otherwise. Um, and so, you know, there's there's definitely different philosophies uh, around this sort of thing. And and I, you know, I don't think it's cut and dried that you should definitely accept harm reduction because, you know, I did a film called Sex Plus Money a few years ago that dealt with uh, sex trafficking and and there's a lot of people who would argue this is, again, another battle going on in Canada right now to legalize prostitution. But I'm, I'm very hesitant about that because uh, what studies have shown in places like Amsterdam and elsewhere where prostitution has been legalized is that legalization creates normalization, which leads to proliferation, not just of legal forms of prostitution, but actually illegal forms. So with, uh, you know, uh, underage uh, and that sort of thing. So... So that under the cover of this legal activity now comes all sort of all sorts of other types of activity. Now again, this is stuff that's sort of, that's being researched, but I think it's 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 a place where we need to tread lightly. But I think that the leading edge or whatever we do should be compassion. And this where this is where I get back to uh, my point earlier. I think about the social safety net in Canada is that 
you know, along with drug use, one of the key contributing factors to people ending up on the street is uh, mental illness. And um, a number of mental health facilities uh, in, in British Columbia and other places in Canada were closed down several years ago due to government basically cutting back funding. And so you're finding a lot of people out in the street who probably would have been in some form of institutional care a decade or so ago, and that care doesn't exist anymore. And so they're unable to medic, you know, get the medication they need, and so they're self-medicating and that sort of thing. So when you talk about dealing with this issue as a community and what can I do as a citizen, well, we can definitely speak to our governments, our municipal governments, our state, or in, in the case of Canada, provincial and federal governments, um, about our desire to have our tax dollars go towards these types of services. <clears throat> you know, uh, something really good that the Salvation Army does uh, in Abbotsford is they actually have a psych- psych- they have a psychiatric nurse um, on staff who will go out, not just wait for people to come in, to the facility, but will actually go out and visit people and, and, um, you know, try and make diagnoses on people and that sort of thing so that they're trying to deal with that aspect of things as well. So as individuals, if we're not trained in dealing with addiction, we're not trained in dealing with mental illness, sometimes there's not much we can do, but we can actually raise our voice though to get our governments to try and provide some of that professional service that, that, uh, you know, people who are struggling with these, with these issues really need. Did did you encounter anyone during the making of the movie, or or just maybe have a a moment yourself where you thought, gosh, you know, the chicken manure incident was the incorrect way to deal with the situation. Here here is something that would have been a good alternative for the city to do. Um, did did you come across anyone that really had a good answer? Well, yeah, they're working on that right now. Again, I'll go back to Ward and Jesse and some other groups uh, are working toward a version of something called a Dignity Village. Um, you'll see this in other communities, say in Portland, Oregon. They're experimenting with this. Uh, and this is a, a, a piece of land where people can live, camp essentially, or perhaps live in uh, uh, converted shipping containers some communities have used, that sort of thing. But it's a a form of transitional, low-cost housing um, that is better than just people camping on the side of the road between a set of railway tracks. Um, And so there's bathroom facilities, there's regular garbage pickup, and and some of these different types of services. So that's that's something, different options along those lines are being explored. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, In involving that in Abbotsford is that while I was filming with the five and two, uh, one of the groups that ended up teaming up with the five and two, which is a Christian ministry was a group called the Abbotsford, uh, atheist, skeptic and humanist organization. They were, <laughs> they were a recently formed group and they were actually looking for opportunities to raise their public profile and to get involved in some of the issues in the community. So they end up teaming up with the five and two to, uh, do a dinner for the homeless in the park. That is awesome. Yeah, so here they are. So what Ward does is uh, twice a week, uh, his team, they provide a meal in the park, um, and then they do a kind of a, a church service afterwards. And so these uh, atheist, skeptic, and humanists were helping facilitate that. Well, <laughs> out of that comes a friendship with a guy named uh, uh, Jeff Grubin and, and Nancy Wise and some of the other folks in the leadership, uh, particularly Jeff um, He was a very practical guy and thought, well, why don't we do something about this? And so he and Ward came up with the idea for a portable housing unit, which it kind of looks like a coffin on wheels. 
But what it is, it's, it's made out of wood. It's very cheap to make, and it's got two wheels on the back, so you can actually hook it up to a bike, which many people who are living outdoors have a bike. And so you could put all your stuff inside and wheel it around town, and then you can park it and sleep in it, and it's a lot, uh, you know, uh, it'll keep you a lot drier than living in a tent um, and that sort of thing. And, and the funny thing is that uh, they, they decided to call it the DREAM Project, and DREAM is an acronym, D-R-E-A-M, and they thought, well, if the mayor tries to stop this one, he'll be killing a dream, and so there's no way he, he can go against it. <laughs> so, but anyway, that was, I, I think, I, I don't think the idea is going to fly necessarily, but I just really like the sense of humor, and I like the creativity to say, you know what, we can solve this. This isn't some big unsolvable problem. It's, it's a question of, are we, do we have the political will? Are we willing to invest the time and creativity in saying, you know, let's not just dump on these folks. We have a problem here. Nobody likes this situation. Um, we, we can't just put everyone on a bus and ship them out of town, which is what a lot of people would love to do, um, because then that just makes our problem someone else's problem. Um, wow. Let's acknowledge that this is a situation we're going to deal with in one of the fastest growing cities in Canada. So instead of making headlines for being the most cold-hearted city in terms of how we treat the homeless, why don't we try and make headlines for being the most creative, the most compassionate community in all of Canada? I mean, I think that's something worth fighting for. And I think more and more people in Abbotsford are catching that vision. And so that's exciting. And, and, the, and the fact that it's taking the atheists, skeptics, and humanists in the Bible, the, the Bible <laughs> belt of the country, and they're the ones who are going to lead the way along with, you know, unconventional Christians, Ward Draper and Jesse Wagoness. Well, to me, that's prophetic, I guess, is all you could call that. You know, I, I think it is. Um, I, I'm often guilty myself of pointing the finger at, at, you know, oftentimes for me, it's pointing the finger at the institution and going, gosh, you guys are just you're missing it. Why aren't you doing it this way? Or, you know, why are you filling in this area? And often not dreaming new dreams and envisioning a new world. Mm -hmm. um, I think so often we can be guilty. And I think part of this for, for someone like me and for a, a big part of the podcast community here is that um, we've been so turned off to institutional versions of church, to hyper-conservative Christianity that oftentimes we, we stand at a distance and point the finger and, and decry what either they're doing or what they're not doing. And uh, rarely do we come up with good visions of how to handle the same situation ourselves. So I think that's something that um, I, I think maybe in this entire situation, whether it be homelessness or whatever, whatever issue we're facing, um, we've got to learn how to dream new dreams and we've got to learn how to see new visions and uh, to be able to actually enact the world that we want to see. You know, I mean, just like Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. It's so yeah. easy to decry others for not changing without coming up with creative solutions yourself. Well, and I think that just becomes another excuse for inactivity, right, is, yeah. is pointing out the faults of others. You know, I can't really say, I mean, I think one of the few people I know uh, who can speak with integrity on this is is Ward Draper, you know, because he has literally, you know, this is his life. And Jesse, right alongside with him, I mean, these guys, this is their life 24-7. So they are being the change that they want to see. And so in a sense, I feel that they're some of the only people I know who who really can point the finger in a sense, you know, because, you know, even though they shouldn't, but, you know, they're they're out there living it. Um, but I think you're, you're exactly right. And, 
and and I think it's almost exciting because it's we can actually be entrepreneurial about this. And there's a lot of really great social entrepreneurs out there in the world doing some really incredible things. And so I, I think that you know when I worked uh, again on the film Sex Plus Money, I was impressed by a guy named Siddharth Kara who had done a lot of work. He he was uh, uh, I think Stanford uh, Business School graduate. Anyway, he 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 knew a lot about the world of uh, big business and finance. And he decided to go after the business of sex trafficking as if it was like any other business to try and figure out the rules of supply and demand and then to say, okay, we're now that we know how the business works, we're going to use that knowledge to come up with creative solutions on how to shut it down. And, wow. and uh, I think that that is – I think that we can be just as creative with this type of issue and it's, it's now – no longer a burden that we have to bear and an obligation that we have to perform. This is an opportunity to actually really put our best and brightest minds toward trying to figure out what are all the contributing factors to this problem and then how can we actually turn it around? How can we just apply our best thinking to coming up with creative solutions? So I don't think that, and this is one of the problems when you talk about homelessness is that people go, oh yeah, the homeless, yeah, I should do something more about that. You know, it automatically triggers a guilt or a sense of obligation as opposed to saying, uh, as opposed to it really tr- triggering our entrepreneurial spirit to say, mm. I'm going to actually brainstorm about this and be really creative and see what we can come up with. And I, I would much rather trigger that type of thinking in people as opposed to just sort of that, that you know, same old thing when we see starving children on a you know, World Vision commercial. Oh, yeah, I should do more about that. Yeah. And then we never do anything about it because you know, yeah. it's that sort of hopelessness that you talked about where you just feel kind of par- paralyzed. Yeah. Wow. So good. Wow. That's, that's really good, Kevin. I think that really is enacting new creation. I mean, that's really what it's all about when we talk about the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's what we're talking about is figuring out how to, how to make God's will happen on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, if we look in, you know, if, if we think about heaven as a place where there are no tears and there's no suffering and there's no hunger and thirst and famine and, you know, there, there's none of that then we really have to figure out creative ways to, to make that happen. I, I thought here recently, and I think it was, maybe it was after watching the movie. I can't remember, but the, the thought just all of a sudden came to me about Jesus's parable about the talents. Mm-hmm. And you know how he gave the one person 10 talents, another five, another one. And you know, the, the one with 10 goes and produces 10 more. The one with five produces five more. And the one with one buries it. And when you get to the end of the story, um, and you get all the way down to the one that had the one talent and buried it. And the master goes, gosh, where's your talent? You didn't do anything with it. The, I've always thought to myself, you know, isn't it unfair that this guy that had 10 talents gets that one guy's one talent, <laughs> you know, and it says to the, and, and Jesus explains it by saying to those who have even more will be given, but to those who have, who, who who don't have, even what they don't have will be taken away. And I've always thought that that's always been so enigmatic to me. And what the heck is he saying? And in, in line with what we're talking about here tonight, I just, all of a sudden, it just kind of felt like one of those epiphanies where it opened up and it went, you know, when you begin to use what you have, when you begin to, uh, you, you know, um, with your mind, when you begin to think new thoughts, when you're reading books, when you're doing all of these things, they talk about how neural pathways begin to form in your mind. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, for a while I took up the mandolin about five or six years ago and I was playing like three hours a day and making all of this great progress. And, 
And then we had kids and, um, you know, I laid it down for a long time and here recently I've picked it back up and I've just been just stunned at how difficult it's been to pick it back up. It's not been like riding a bike, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I was re- doing some reading on, on that whole idea of, of neural, neural mapping and how, you know, those neurons begin to disintegrate when you don't use those same skills. But when you build new skills, how those neurons begin to build new pathways. And I really thought about that in light of that parable and that Jesus is basically saying, when we use everything we have, we begin to grow the capacity literally sometimes within our very brains in our, in our anatomical structure we begin to grow the ability to think new thoughts, to envision new ways of doing things. We begin to grow our capacity to retain information and, and all of these things. But when we don't use that, that literally even what we have is taken away from us, that that we go backwards. It's kind of like, you know, that, that illustration of the escalator that you're either you're either going forward or you're going backward, but you can't stand still. Yeah. And uh I think what you're talking about, it's really that same idea. It's saying, let's exercise, let's let's create new neural pathways on how to deal with these problems. Let's exercise our minds. Let's get out there and, and actually, instead of feeling guilty about it, let's envisage ways that we can do something. And it doesn't have to look like what Ward's doing or what Jesse's doing or what anyone's doing. It can be our own stamp. We can put our own stamp on it. But it's just the fact that we're trying to envisage something. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I mean, and it's interesting what you say about the neural pathways. I think that's true for an individual. But what about for a community? I mean, I think that that communities fall into patterns of behavior as well. And and so, um, what about trying to develop new patterns of relating as a community? And and so, can we form sort of new neural pathways as a group? And you know, I think one of the key ones is to think about. You know, the, the notion of, of people who are living outside tend, like, we tend to think of them as people who just consume services or consume or, or, or have needs. But what about beginning to consider them as a resource to the community, just like anyone else in the community is a resource? And what do they have to offer to the community? And so how can we begin to integrate them into what we're doing? You know, so Ward and Jesse with the five and two, I think actually that's one of the things they practice is that while you're not just somebody who's coming here to consume. You have stuff to offer. And so, you know, I, one of the people I interviewed who's actually not in the film was someone who was uh, involved in prostitution up until, uh, you know, several months ago, who's now uh, ministering. Uh, you know, I was actually on a ride along one time when they ended up picking up a, a transvestite from out of town who was really struggling because um, she's obviously dealing with some mental health issues as well. Um, and uh, but this person who had been prostituting and was able to relate to this person and was a woman could come alongside and help do things that Ward and Jesse couldn't do, you know. Wow. So suddenly this person who just not very long ago was in a sense somebody we would perceive as a consumer of services is now drawing on her experience um, to help to minister to somebody. So there's, there are tremendous resources out there amongst these people who are living outdoors. They just, I think, go unrecognized because we don't even begin to consider that that might be a possibility. So I think that's one of those, those, those new ways of thinking, but we'll never know what those resources are until, um, we start, you know, having relationships. And I should say, I see my son wandering around uh, in the room here. He was with me one time when I interviewed Gregory, who appears in the film. Gregory's an alcoholic. 
and uh, he's also dying of bone cancer. He's also a certified mechanic at one point, father of two kids. His wife died of cancer, which uh, which I think for him was the breaking point in his life. And uh, we ran into him one day uh, on an overpass, and uh, he was very drunk, and uh, but ended up engaging with my son and I for probably about an hour on the side of the road. You know, uh, I was constantly in fear of him getting hit by a car. He's kind of weaving around, but. But I think even for my son, that was a moment that he's never going to forget um, mm. because, uh, you know, Gregory's, you know, of course, few sheets to the wind and lecturing him on, you know, giving him all this great life wisdom. <laughs> that he has. But, you know, what it did for my son, though, I think was to to just it, it just helped him cross a line into a world that he'd never really encountered before. And so, you know, we've talked about it quite a few times since. And so I think it was just it, it becomes kind of almost a normal thing for him then to go, oh, there's a guy with a shopping cart. I don't need to be afraid of that person. Um, in fact, he's actually quite funny. Um, you know, this particular guy was. And, and, you know, maybe there's a potential for a relationship with that guy there as opposed to just, oh, oh I better steer clear of that person. You know, it, it, it yeah. demystifies it. it. Yeah. Demystifies it for us. I, I think yeah. that's the thing. We're always scared of what we don't know. Right. But when we when we allow ourselves to be exposed, that fear begins to 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 move away. Yeah. Um, in wrapping this up, Kevin, let me just ask you what your takeaway has been from the movie. I know that Hellbound changed you in profound ways, um, changed your, your image of God um, and, and many other things, I'm sure. But from this movie, what would you say has been the big takeaway for you? Well, you know, it's, I think the big takeaway is, is it's a humbling thing for me because it, it challenges me to ask, how am I living my life? And it, it it's revealing how self-involved I am and how easy it is for me to look the other way when there's a problem that I don't have, I don't want to deal with and I don't necessarily have to deal with unless I choose to deal with it. So I think for me, the film is just very personally challenging um, in terms of how I've constructed my entire life and how resources flow through my life and that sort of thing. So it's not that I, anything I found an answer on, it's just almost like a daily reminder. Every time I have to talk about this film, it's a bit of a like, well, uh, you know, oh, you can look all, you know, great and sympathetic. You made this film about the homeless. And so you must, you know, oh, you're this great compassionate man. Well, no, that's not the case at all. You know, I just happen to be someone who is in a position to make this film and it was as much a personal journey, a transformation, ongoing personal journey of transformation for me as, as it is for anyone. So I'm not really trying to call anyone to do anything that I'm not doing in this film. I'm, it's just more really trying to, I guess, draw attention to something that, that really caught my attention and, and was a wake-up call for me. And I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of people in Abbotsford. And I'm just hoping the film can kind of reach far beyond the community. So that's one thing I want to say about the film is that the chicken manure incident was a very, you know, it's a very local story, but I think it's a universal story as well. And when I, when I teach screenwriting, I always say that what you need to do as a storyteller is to try and find the universal in the particular. Um, and, and that's really what I tried to do in this film. And I think that whether you live in Nashville or you live in, uh, you know, uh, Toronto, I don't care where you live, that these same types of issues and these, these same sort of systemic social problems are there. And um, the church is there, too. And so how can we come together creatively as a community to, to start to, to build communities around people who aren't necessarily able to cope as well as we are? And, and so, yeah, I guess for me, the takeaway is, is just that is how can we be better citizens 
how can we be more compassionate and more creative in terms of how we, uh, you know, confront people who are really struggling? You know, you talk about having the finding the universal and the particular, and I think that's exactly what you've done in this film, Kevin, is you've given real life stories that connect with people on a, on a very personal level. And that has a way of breaking the ice and breaking the, um, breaking some of the stereotypes that we've, that we've had set up for us or that we've set up ourselves um, and, and really shows us a fresh side, both of the, of the homeless and of, you know, ways that we can, that we can not only help homeless people, but how we can help ourselves by learning how to, like you said, gain from the experience of those people. Um, Jamie Arpenrisi in, in one of the last podcasts I did, he, I can't remember the exact quote or who it was from. It was from a, a lady who was an Aboriginal in, in Australia and basically the quote went something like, and Jamie's probably listening right now and going to go, gosh, Ray, you're murdering this. But <laughs> <laughs> the quote went, basically was talking about, if you've come here to help me, then go home. Mm. But if you've come here because your liberation is tied up with mine, then let's join hands and let's work this thing out together. Yeah. And I think that's really what you've done with the movie is you've humanized the homeless but you, but you also, in the process, have have kept from dehumanizing other people, and I, I really appreciate that. Tell us where we can find the movie. Sure, um, you can find the chicken manure incident on Vimeo on demand, and so the easiest way to find your way to it, <coughs> excuse me, is to go to Facebook, and you can go to our page on Facebook called the Chicken Manure Incident, and there you'll be able to click on a link that will get you to the film. But yeah, it's available on Vimeo On Demand or VHX.tv. So you can just Google the Chicken Manure Incident, Vimeo On Demand, and uh, you'll find us there. And what I'm, I've done is made the film of, available digitally. I'm going to do a very short run of DVDs as well. Um, but uh, digitally, you can buy it for 5 bucks, rent it for 3 And I'm encouraging uh, small groups or churches or colleges uh, to screen the film and use it as a basis for discussion. I've actually done... Uh, we did a screening in Abbotsford. I was in Edmonton, Alberta last weekend, did a couple of screenings. There's several more screenings going to be happening in the lower mainland and at colleges and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I, I just think it's a, it's a good film to use for that. And anyway, yeah, go on to Facebook, uh, and, uh, looking up the chicken manure incident and you'll find us there. What was the, just out of curiosity, um, I think you said something about actually taking a laptop down to one of the homeless camps that you've been interviewing. What was their reaction to the film? Yeah, I actually haven't uh, been able to do that personally, but uh, one of the guys who uh, works with the five and two is uh, he actually was just today downloading the film uh, in order to take it out to uh, show to a couple of guys who appear in the film who are out in the camps. So I think that's really cool. We actually tried to get them to the screening a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but they just, they, they wouldn't come. Uh, and so that's just the way it goes. But so we'll just get the movie to them. And, uh, so uh, yeah, I'm really curious to hear the reaction personally, actually. Awesome. La- last question, Kevin, what's your, what, what have you got on the horizon right now? Uh, well, I'm quite excited. Uh, we're just sort of waiting with bated breath, uh, in terms of some funding coming through on something called the divine comedy of Thomas Merton, which is, uh, a feature film, uh, that I co-wrote, which, uh, is, a, is, uh, biopic about the famous uh, Catholic writer and monk, Thomas Merton, and it takes place within the last three years of his life. So looking forward to uh, hopefully being able to put that into production later this year. And actually right now I'm editing uh, a short uh, documentary piece called Songs for Justice, which is uh, about a group of musicians uh, 
including Brian Dirksen, uh, who's a, a well-known uh, worship song writer, uh, David Roos, and, and some other people who uh, went off to a castle in Germany for a weekend to see if they could uh, basically write and record an album's worth of songs and uh, all around uh, the issues of uh, justice having to do with the International Justice Mission. And so I'm uh, mm. somebody, somebody filmed that process, and uh, I'm cutting it together into what's going to be about a half-hour piece. Wonderful. Yeah. Kevin, as always, so glad to have you on the podcast. Always appreciate your insights, brother, and appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, keep up the good stuff, man. Great. Well, I appreciate you guys. And uh, like I said to you a while back, you're, you're kind of my running companion. So uh, when I go running, <laughs> uh, I'm listening to Beyond the Box. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Kevin. Okay, take care. Great discussion. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time not only to be on the podcast, but to really be out there on the street and to catch this thing as it happened. Fascinating, uh, fascinating discussion. Also a fascinating documentary. I've watched it twice now. Probably will watch it again. Um, Just really, really good. Just some really heart-stirring stuff. And just really makes you think through some tough issues, not only about homelessness, but about our own hearts. Um, I really hope you guys will check out the movie, The Chicken Manure Incident. You can go on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash the chicken manure incident, and actually like the Facebook page. And from there, you can get links to watch it on Vimeo On Demand, where you can either rent the film or you can purchase it for a mere $5. So it's just a really good film at a really good price think you guys will really enjoy it. If you haven't seen it, I really encourage you to do so. And I am really saying really a whole lot for real. (laughs) Anyway, it has been great to be with you guys. At this point, normally I would go into my very long spiel about our Twitter and Facebook and website and who knows what else. But since we have brand new intro and outro music, I'm going to let the outro tell you all of those good links and places that you can join the conversation. I will make one little um, caveat before I get out of here, and that's that as you listen to this outro, you're going to notice that we give all of our links. We have had one small change that we're going to need to edit out of our outro, but I just haven't gotten around to that yet, and it's um, having to do with our Facebook group. Our Facebook group, when we first, uh, when when Steve actually created the Facebook group, um, at first we made it private, but while it was private, in other words, people couldn't see the conversation on your wall, Facebook was actually advertising us to the world. So if they found groups that they thought that people would be interested in, um, if, if someone was in another group that was similar to Beyond the Box, they would begin to recommend Beyond the Box as a group to a lot of other people out there. And at first we thought this was a good thing because a lot of people could join the conversation, but we're realizing more and more that it actually hasn't been a great thing because many people are coming in without any context for the conversations that we're having. And we actually had some people come in with a really bad attitude um, and kind of with agendas that it really felt like they were kind of sabotaging the conversation in some situations. So we just decided to actually make the group secret, which just simply means that it's not advertised by Facebook. Now, unfortunately, the one adverse effect that that has had is that the URL is no longer active. So when you hear about the URL, the facebook.com slash groups slash BTB podcast discussion, 
Um, people actually, if they type in that link, cannot find the podcast. But let me just tell you, if you want to be part of the Facebook group, which we would absolutely love to have you over there, um, if you'll just go to the, the Facebook page for Beyond the Box, um, I think it's facebook.com slash Box. If you'll just visit there and make a comment once you like the page, if you'll just make a comment that says, please invite me to the group, Steve or I one will see that and we will automatically invite you to the group. So we definitely want you there. Um, the only reason we made it secret and, and hid the URL was simply because we didn't want a lot of people that were coming in to troll or to take over the group. Our group has really invested a lot of time in, in the idea of community and of getting to know each other. And so we really wanted people to feel that it was a safe place to communicate with others, to, to launch ideas out there, to see um, kind of some, some new ideas or to float ideas out there that they're thinking through and to not be judged for it. And we really didn't want arguments and all of those kinds of things to break out or name calling. And, and while from time to time we know those kinds of things, that there's always a possibility that you know people can get a hot temper or whatever, um, we understand that. And when we know people and that happens, it's one thing because we can, we can discuss those things. But when people come in and just begin taking over from the get go and aren't able to be, um, talked to about it, then it kind of creates some problems. So we hope this won't be an inconvenience for you guys. And please know that if you're listening to this podcast, you're invited. Um, you, you definitely are a part of this community and we want you there. So that was just a small long, unabridged caveat about the Facebook group, but I hope it will serve to help you understand where we're coming from. So anyway, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to let Steve and Ray on that new outro music tell you all of those crazy places that you can visit and like and listen and comment and all that good stuff. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Kevin Miller, for being part of this. And we look forward to being with you again soon on Beyond the Box. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Box. We would love to connect with you online, and we have several ways for you to add your voice to the Beyond the Box community. To join our Facebook group, visit facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash BTB podcast discussion. This group is a safe place to talk about your journey and to think through your walk with God. While you're there, you can like our Facebook page to receive updates on new podcasts and happenings at facebook.com slash beyond the box. You can also visit our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, where you can hear all of our previous podcast discussions, submit ideas for future episodes, check out our blog, and even call us to leave your audio comment or idea. Look for the Call Me widget on the right-hand side of the screen where you can enter your name and phone number to have our answering machine call you, or you can call us directly at 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. However you choose to connect with us, we just hope you do. You are a welcome part of the community that is... Beyond the Box. 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 Beyond the Box.